Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George. We appreciate your joining with us once again on a news and research week. We have a lot to talk about this week, and so I don't want to delay too much before we get into it, but I do want to give two quick shout-outs. The first one is to all the people that joined us for the Facebook Live that Blue Pineapple Travel did this past Thursday night. Uh, it was with Trek Travel, and they talked about all the various vacations that Trek Travel can provide for you around the world cycling vacations and they gave a discount code that you can use to book a trip and get a discount uh, on trek travel through blue pineapple travel Uh, and so if you're interested in that it's still available on facebook check it out on blue pineapple travel's facebook page Uh, The other shout out is to all the people who showed up today to the session that I did at Precision Performance and Physical Therapy uh, that was brought to us by the physical therapist, Kate Edwards. Uh, Coach Carl from here in Atlanta and I talked a lot about how to not get overtrained. Uh, And it was interesting and fun and a lot of good questions and a lot of great interactions and I had a great time. Uh, So shout out to all the people who joined us on Thursday and shout out to all the people who joined us today. If you want to reach out to me, my email address is george at itlcoaching.com. Patrick's on the podcast with us again this week. You can reach out to him, patrick at itlcoaching.com, or you can send one to the podcast, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are glad to be back with you once again. Thanks for downloading us here on News and Research Week. Patrick and I coming to you after doing yet another long run together. So how's the uh, Boston Marathon training, Patrick? Oh, it's going great. We finally turned the corners um, this week. You know, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, but for the, I would say for the months of December and January, it was kind of a slog coming back from Sacramento and putting in the winter cold miles. And then finally, I had a good workout on Thursday, and then today was a great run, so it, it feels good. It right always on. seems to happen right in the nick of time, where, where things start clicking and you start firing on all cylinders. But you know, it's funny, because that's the way it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And that's the way we kind of set it up to happen and everything, you know, but, but I'm, I'm now 10 weeks out from my target marathon. Mm -hmm. So that means you're seven weeks out from your target marathon. Right. And so, so for me, like I'm not there yet. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to be there yet. You want to only peak in 10 weeks out, but at the same time, I'm kind of in this weird zone where I'm like, I sort of want to be in shape, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and it's like, I feel like I, I'm starting to feel impatient, really. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have that March to Gold race next weekend. And 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 so I know that I'm going to be towing a starting line and I want to be fit. And, and, and of course, that's not my target race, but you still want to do well, right? Yeah, so. you, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's impatience. Yeah. It, it, it gets a little like, okay, I, I put in the work for Sacramento. Now I'm ready to be back to where I was then. Um, for sure, and, and that's true for everybody in a lot of different cycles, and you know, it's interesting because it, that almost never changes, no matter how many years you run, yeah. how many years you do this sport. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, around eight weeks or so is kind of where you want to start turning that corner, mm-hmm. um, and then and then around four weeks is where you really want to be like, I am fit, right. you know, um, at most. Um, and so so yeah, ten weeks. I don't want to be my fittest at this point, but at the same time, yeah, I'm impatient. I'm ready to let go. 
Um, but let's talk about some news and research in the meantime, though. Um, speaking of, of, of things that we have talked about before on this podcast, um, a name was released last week, and many of you probably saw this, uh, the name of the guy who killed the mountain lion slash catamount slash puma, whatever word you prefer, um, in Colorado while he was on a run. Uh, Travis Kaufman is his name. No, Chuck Norris is not his name. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that joke was made several times online over the course of the week before we knew who he was. And he actually made, Travis Kaufman himself made that joke when he sat down. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have seen that, that the very first thing he said to the assembled crowd of reporters was, how many of y'all are surprised that I'm not Chuck Norris or something like that? Um, he's a pretty funny guy, actually, and he had an hour-long press conference in which they asked him all sorts of different questions about the experience, stuff like that. So, um, uh, his girlfriend ended up at one point. She didn't start with him, but she came up on the stage with him, and and they talked about how it was Valentine's Day and and all that sort of thing. And and a meme. You mentioned this this morning. A meme went around about the two of them that she was looking at him um, with a particular look in her eyes uh, yeah. and, and a lot of people saying well this is you know the look that you get when when you you kill a mountain lion with your bare hands but uh, mm-hmm. but anyway uh, yeah a few things stood out to me about it one is that he's not really that much of a trail runner he's only been on, only been on the trails those trails a few times um, yeah. and he was out for a 15 mile run he said he was he was most of the way through it at that point um, and he said that he saw it and then he kind of turned towards it and then realized pretty quickly it was going to attack him and sure enough it jumped on him um, and he said the whole time that he was kind of wrestling with it, he could tell by its size that it was not a full-grown mountain lion. He could tell by its size that, that it was, a, it was a, an adolescent, and he was worried the entire time that the mama was going to show up. Yeah. And so he said he's sitting here wrestling with it, and he eventually gets his foot on its throat to choke it, to kill it. Um, and the whole time he's in the back of his head, i got to get out of here. Right, because because mom's going to show up. This um, can't take a lot of time. Yeah, and he said he said as soon as the encounter was over, and of course he had been bitten and scratched up on his face and on his hands and on his arm. Um, he said he dashed those last four miles, um, just trying to get back to his car in a real hurry because he was worried that he was going to have a mama mountain lion on his trail. Right. <laughs> um, I can imagine that was pretty nerve wracking. So many, yeah. A few <laughs> things stood out. So we finally got the full story of what actually happened, which was one of the interesting parts about this because. As I'm sure a lot of folks who are runners thought when, you know, I, I heard him talk and I thought, okay, how would I react in this situation? Right. I mean, I, I really was like, hmm, this is interesting. Um, so several things. One, when he talked about how he knew it was going to attack, I don't know if you caught this, but he, he said something to the effect of, I turned around and was bummed it was just a mountain lion. What? I didn't see that. Yeah, that was his exact word, bummed. And I was like, not to wordsmith. <laughs> but I would feel a lot of emotions at that point. Bummed would not be one of them. Right, right. Because bummed denotes like a loss of energy. Relieved, maybe. Yeah, yeah. you better believe I would have had a serious spike in energy and in uh, in adrenaline if I had turned around and seen a mountain lion. I mean, heck, I, I may have told this story before on this podcast. I got attacked by an owl once, and that was enough. Did you really? But, yeah, I was on a run, and or I guess I can share this story now. Um, I was on a run in Birmingham, and I was running by uh, um, Lakeshore Drive right in front of Stanford University. And okay. there's, a, there's a river that runs right along the road, and there's a trail between the river and the road, and then there's a bunch of trees like kind of around the river that kind of hang over the trail, right. hang over the, the, the paved trail. And I'm running through, and, I, and it's nighttime. It's about 7, 8 o'clock at night, and I feel these thorns in my head. Like from one of the trees, I'm like, 
ow, that really hurt. Like, I must have just caught my head. And I was like, that really hurt. But it wasn't And thorns. I turn around, and it was a full-fledged owl. And the wingspan, <laughs> like, it was, like, it was in full flight with, like, the wingspan of, like, 10 feet or whatever. At least it looked to be, like, nice. Batman or something. And let's just say I flipped, and I ran the fastest mile of my life I'm sure. back to my dorm. I got back, and my, my buddies were like, dude, did you just see a ghost? Because you look spooked. And then, of course, they, they ended up looking on my head, and I had all the, like, claw marks. It was pretty pretty wild, but... that So, we're on a podcast. I'm looking at Patrick now the same way that, that, that Travis Kaufman's girlfriend was looking at him <laughs> in those memes, but, but, okay, so... Yeah, my story's not nearly as impressive. No, but it's still pretty impressive. The, the, um, the class of birds that owls belong to, you know what that class of birds is called? Uh, night owls. They're, no they're, they're, called, they're called raptors. Okay. Um, like velociraptors, like Jurassic Park, you know? So I can forever say I was attacked by a raptor. Precisely. I like it. You should totally do that. That should be like your Strava profile <laughs> line. It should be like, Patrick Ollinger, once attacked by a raptor. Um, <laughs> and survived. Hashtag true story. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I will say, I'm in this uh, this shoe group on uh, on on Facebook. This is really great shoe group. Um uh, and has a lot of interesting people on, and I get a lot of the information about you know the the Hoka One One Carbon Rocket and stuff like that from different links that people post on that shoe group. Um, but uh, a lot of people on that group had jokingly said, "I want to know what kind of shoes the guy was wearing," um, because I mean he killed a mountain lion with his foot. I mean, so what kind of shoes did he have on? Right. Um, and Spikes. It, right. And sure enough, it, it was asked of him in the press conference towards the very end of the press conference, and and. Kind of in that, I guess, bum to find out type thing. He was wearing a pair of A6 GT 2000s, um, which are pretty run-of-the-mill pair of shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Although A6 did just come out and make an announcement that they were about to release some... That's right. ...breathtaking new breakthrough. That's right, or, yeah. I can't remember what their exact words were, but uh, it was pretty... Uh, the, the, most, the, the most technologically innovative shoe they've ever created, they said. There we go. Uh, they, they announced it on their YouTube channel, uh, and so we don't know exactly what that means yet. It might mean that they have a response to the Vaporfly 4%, and they're doing something like that. It could just mean that they're just releasing the latest version of some shoe and they just want to say that it's the most advanced technological shoe they've ever had. I'm about to say, you the know? most advanced shoes they've ever released, that just means like a new version of the same gel. Right, right, yeah. Like, they yeah. are the most unadvanced or the most un... Uh, Traditional. Innovative, yeah. yeah there you go. Um, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see whether that's... Resp- I haven't heard any like rumors or anything about them actually creating or prototyping with any stuff like that, so, so we'll see whether they do or not. But, you know, one way or another, they should name the new shoe the Asics Kaufman. Or like the a- the Asics Mountain Lion or something like right. that in honor of this particular event. So not sure, but anyway, kudos to you, Travis Kaufman. And and as I mentioned two weeks ago when I told the original story, uh, let's keep in mind there's only been three confirmed deaths in Colorado by mountain lions since 1990, uh, and there's been less than 12 in North America over the course of the past 100 years. So mm-hmm. it's uh it. These encounters are becoming a little bit more common, just in the same way that the encounters that you and I have with deer at Kennesaw Mountain are becoming more common, just because there's a, a, a shrinking habitat for them and there, there's increased human encroachment. But at the same time, uh, lest you think if you're going to go on a trail run and you're going to run into a mountain lion, the chances are still exceedingly small. Mm-hmm. Um, but sure does make for something fun to talk about on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, holy cow. Yeah. Um, what else did you want to talk about, speaking of stuff well, in the news? Before we move on... Uh, have you ever had an interaction with like a wildlife, like I mean, maybe not an owl or a mountain lion or anything like that? Do you have any stories? Yeah, no. Thanks for bringing it up, jerk. 
<laughs> not nearly as cool as you. I get it, Patrick. No, that's not what I mean at all. Um, or maybe not as foolish as me. No, I don't actually. But but it is interesting to me that that. So I ran at Kennesaw Mountain probably 500 times over the course of my first several years of running. You mm-hmm. know, between college and high school, because in high school we ran there every day. Yeah. Um, and and over the first of the course of the first five or six years I was running there, I probably saw a total of three deer. Um, you and I saw more than three deer today. Oh yeah, we um, saw a little over a dozen. Yeah, and and I don't I I never run there without seeing deer now. Yeah. Um, and it's just because of of the increase in the deer population. Um. Uh, and the shrinking habitat that they have in this area um, and just the increased human encroachment. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, I'd much rather, you know, come face to face with deer as I have right. than mountain lions. Um, but yeah, no, I never had anything. The, so the closest I've come is that I was running a, on a trail one time in Missouri mm-hmm. and I heard, you know, like that sound that hawks and eagles make that, yeah, that sound. I heard that sound. Hmm. That's the closest I can come. Okay. It scared the crap out of me. It's yeah, but so, I, yeah. I, I cannot begin to tell you how scared I was with that alley incident. Um, I'm now talking about it like I was some like big brave soul, but let me let me assure you. When I so just this past December, when when my family and I were in Costa Rica, um, Weston Resorts, all inclusive resorts, um, they market their dedication to fitness, and I didn't know this actually until mm-hmm. we were down there. Um, when we were there, uh, my travel agent wife got us four nights in this resort next to a volcano and then four nights at a resort on the beach. And the resort at the beach was a Weston. Um, and they have running trails really, really close to their, um, basically on the resort property. Um, and so the last day we were there, I was like, all right, I got to get some Costa Rica on my GPS. And I go out and I run on their running trails there in Costa Rica. Um, and first of all, the trails were like profoundly more difficult than I thought they were going to be. Yeah. I did like a five mile run and it had 750 feet of climbing in it. <laughs> I mean, in like, like these gigantic 15, 19% climbs and stuff. But anyway, um, but I was running along and just sort of in my own head during the run. And about half an hour into it, the thought crossed my mind. There might be mountain lions around here. And I had seen, or cougars, um, and I had seen one in a nature preserve a day or two before um, and, mm-hmm. and started kind of thinking about that and kind of got freaked out and kind of got scared, frankly, yeah. um, and, and went ahead and wrapped up and got off the trail as quickly as I could and went ahead and kind of wrapped things up. But, but yeah, so the closest I've ever had is, is uh, seeing a deer, uh, hearing a sound far off in the distance, and in my own head being scared that maybe there was one somewhere close to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not nearly as cool as Travis Kaufman or Patrick Ollinger for that matter. Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, so speaking of, of of things in the news this week, a couple other pieces of news we wanted to mention. Um, let's talk about that that a non-running piece of news, um, mm-hmm. but kind of I think is is important in the sports world, and and of course it could potentially have have impact in the running world, uh, and that's what happened to Zion Williamson this week. Uh, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so Zion Williamson is a kind of once-in-a-generation basketball prospect. Um, and this happens in basketball more so than probably any other sport else, you know, or any other major sports. Um, and the reason is because in basketball, height and size is such a big deal. Right. They, and that's something that you can spot early. I mean, when Dwight Howard is 7 feet tall at 17, you can... Pretty, as long as his knees can hold up, you're like, all right, this guy's going to be good at basketball. Right. So anyways, um, this guy, Zion Williams, is a... Absolute phenomenal basketball player. He's going to be the number one pick in the draft. He's going to be a fantastic NBA player. 
Um, he's he had, a freshman at Duke right now. He's a freshman at Duke, um, and just absolutely doing things that are unreal. I mean, when you look at, at like highlights of him, even as a track and field person, you can just watch him and see some of the blocks he's making and some of the vertical leaps he's making at 280 pounds, mm. and can marvel that a human being can lift that much weight off the ground. Yeah, four or five feet. I mean, it's if just absolutely phenomenal. Um, kind of once in a generation type athletic talent. Right, and the conventional wisdom is that you like you're small and quick, or you're big and powerful and kind of clunky. Right, and he's big and quick. Right. So, 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 yeah. When you mention that once in a generation thing, it's 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 the combination of being so large, but also being so agile, that makes him so unique. Not just so agile, but an, a, able to um, generate so much force and so much quickness in his movements at yeah. all times. Right. That's what's so phenomenal is he, like I said, he weighs 280 pounds and can still like lift his body off the ground four or five feet. I mean, it's just unreal that yeah. someone can generate that much force and that much right. quickness, you know, just with their kind of muscle, muscular explosiveness. Right. Um, so anyway, so the real story is, uh, now that I've gotten off my kind of, you know, sports nerdness, <laughs> was he had, you know, Duke had probably their biggest game of the year against mm-hmm. their rival North Carolina. President Obama was actually on hand to watch the game, just to give you an idea of how big this game was. Right. And earlier in the game, his shoe essentially exploded. It's like immediately, as, as soon as the game started, it was like 30 seconds into the game, literally. Right, and he injures himself because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it. Honestly, it probably is tied to the fact that his body does generate more force than just about anybody else that those shoes are designed for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ended up being a, a bit of a, just a storm of, of social media um, commentary from from stock, from people who tend to comment on the stock market, like what is this gonna do to Nike's brand equity? What's it gonna do to their stock? What's it gonna do to their overall kind of just reputation within the sports world to have mm-hmm. their equipment fail on a massive scale on live TV for everyone to see? Right. In, in a way that we're not even used to seeing. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, yeah. And his and his shoe didn't just like come untied and come off. Like it it disintegrated. Yeah. It like blew a hole in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It it completely fell apart. Like it and it wasn't like one stitch came out or he tripped over it or something else like that. I mean, literally the sole of the shoe was ripped off of the upper of the shoe. Right. Um. It was it was a profound equipment malfunction. <laughs> right. And and it looks like the initial diagnosis is he sprained his knee because of it. Uh-huh. Um. It, I mean, it, like I said, he literally blew out his shoe. So then, in effect, if you if you were watching it for the first time, it looks like he just slipped or something, mm-hmm. and then right. it related it, when it resulted right. in an injury. Then when you watch the replay, you realize no, his like shoe blew out. So then when he went to like, you know, push his foot off the ground, he didn't have that stability he was expecting. Right. And then um, it, it you know resulted in injury. Right. And so and so he misses the whole rest of the game. His team ends up losing the game by a significant amount. You know, they're the number one team in the United States. Um, and and it couldn't be, like you say, on a, on a bigger stage. But it, it, it sort of represented, in, in people looking at it, a confluence of a lot of different ongoing conversations yes. um, uh, about the impact and the, the influence of shoe companies inside of, of uh, sports and, and certainly the amateurism of people like Zion Williamson. So, so Zion Williamson, as many of you probably know, uh, is not allowed to go into the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was graduated from high school last year um, at about age 18. 
Um, and there's a rule, and there has been a rule since 2006 in the NBA that says you cannot go into the NBA until you're a year removed from high school um, and you're at least 19 years old. Um, and so he had basically a year to kill, and he could have done it a lot of different ways. Um, he could have gone to play in the, the NBA G League, which used to be known as the D League, mm -hmm. um, but now it's G League because G for Gatorade, the main sponsor. Right. Um, and he could have gone to play in some foreign country for a little while. He could have played at a junior college. But, I mean, he wants to play on the big stage, you know? He wants to play at the games that the former president of the United States is going to come watch. Right. Right? And, uh, and so he goes to play for Duke. Um, and I don't think anybody harbors any illusions that Zion Williamson is going to finish four years at Duke. Oh, heck um, no. But, but yet he's playing for a year or so there. Um, and then he's going to go on to the NBA and, and make millions of dollars. But he doesn't make any money playing for Duke. And he merely sprained his knee. He'll probably be okay. He'll still get drafted next year or the end of this year as, as, the, uh, as the number one draft pick in the NBA. But what if this had been worse? Yeah. Um, and and his guaranteed millions had disappeared. Yeah, which is obviously I, I don't I don't think that's ever happened in in the NBA. That obviously happens all the time in in with the NFL or with football players. What do you mean? Um, where someone has suffered a career-ending injury. Oh yeah. Or, uh, or a severe enough injury that they were undraftable. Mm -hmm. Um, into they, into the NFL versus they missed the NBA. that window. Yeah. Right. Like Johnny Utah in Point Break. <laughs> For, yes, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so it, it 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 brings about a lot of different interesting perspectives, and and we talk a lot about kind of the shoe politics in in this podcast related to running, mm -hmm. but the difference there is the shoe, you know, companies are the ones that almost bring the money into the sport, mm -hmm. right? As opposed oh, yeah. to you know the NBA where the shoe companies are a nice add-on for mm -hmm. for most players, right? But most of their money comes from actually playing in the NBA. Same with the NFL, where most of their money comes from the actual NFL, specifically as opposed to being paid by the shoe companies. What's interesting is since the amateur athletes can't be paid, then the shoe companies in college basketball have to go to the school and pay the schools a lot of money. And the coaches. And the coaches a lot of money, and the admins a lot of money. But then the player can't receive it, and so it, it, it feels like one of those rules that was... Um, just doesn't really get at what it was intended to. Yeah, for lack I, of a better. Yeah, I mean, and and nobody is nobody's going to go out and buy Nikes because because Nike gives a bunch of money to Coach Shashevsky. They're going to go out and buy Nikes because Zion Williamson wears them. Right. And and yet Zion Williamson is not going to get any sort of of remuneration as a result of his tacit endorsement of the product. Um, mm -hmm. and and evidently, and this is kind of part of the story. He's taken a risk to be wearing these products, you right. know. I mean, there, there's a degree to which he's he's uh, simply being told that this is what you have to wear, and and now, um, now he's injured. Well, so. I will I will tell you kind of a personal story where um, this actually does play in a little bit. Um, so my alma mater, Stanford, they signed a deal with Asics when I was there. Mm -hmm. So we had to wear all Asics. We had to, so when I was at Georgia Tech, we first had a deal with Adidas for my first three yeah. years, and then my senior year we signed on with. Either my junior, I think it was my junior. We signed on with Reebok. Yeah. Um, but it was the entire athletic association that signed on with them, not the track team. Right, and it was actually a big yeah. deal that Tech just switched from Reebok to, I believe it was Russell, like last year or two years ago. I think it was the, I think they switched away from Russell to something else. Oh, you're right. Okay, I, I messed that up. Yeah. But the, the point is, yeah. it's it, it cuts across sports usually. Now yeah. I was a small enough school that 
it was by department. So like we were A6, the football team was Nike, et cetera. Here's where it got personal for me. I did not do well in A6. Um, they definitely increased the soreness when I, when I was running, mm-hmm. just the shoot products we were offered. Yeah. I noticed a clear increase in, you know, perceived muscle soreness and, um, performance, you know, when racing in them and in, and especially in racing in them, cause they did not have good racing flats or racing right. spikes when I was right. there. Um, and so that was always an interesting perspective. I don't know how much basketball players notice the difference between Nike and Adidas in terms of like. Mm-hmm. Are their knees more sore or not? Mm-hmm. But I could tell you, for me, it it had a, a very significant impact when I didn't have a choice for which shoes I could wear. For sure, and yeah, and, and it's not only that for us. And I think there's a degree to which it's probably changed. And so I, I don't want to talk about you know what the current situation is with the Georgia Tech crack and cross country team in terms of their shoes. I will say that I saw some of them in the airport recently, uh, and their shoes that they were wearing are color-coded for Georgia Tech, which is kind of badass. But anyway, um, back, but back in the day, not only did we not have a, a, a non-choice on the brand, we also didn't really have a choice on the model. Yeah, um, and, and, and that was us. And so they basically just gave us the neutral model of shoe, and that's the shoe that we ran in. And so for as much time as we spent on this podcast talking about individuals and, and differences in gates, and you should go to a running specialty store and figure out the shoes that work best for you, that's not at all what happened with us. But they said, here's your shoes, here's your spikes, go run. And that was when we um, were doing 100 plus miles a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah and to say nothing of the fact that we, we put about 700 miles on each pair of shoes right you know in a, yeah, two yeah. months right right because and, and the reason why is because we were running so much that if we weren't if we were replacing them every 400 miles we were replacing them virtually every month right um and and our coach just basically said i'm not giving you a new pair of shoes every month right um you know and and i, I kind of get where they were coming from with that but anyway um yeah, the, the, the deal that Nike has specifically with Duke, we don't know that deal because Duke is a private school, and so they're not inclined or obliged to, to share that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we do know the ones that they have with public schools. I mean, you mentioned the, the, the deal that Georgia Tech has here. Um, uh, one article I mentioned said, hey, North Carolina, the other team that was on the floor, is also sponsored by Nike. And as part of that deal, Roy Williams, who's the coach of the University of North Carolina, gets $300,000 a year from Nike. Just here you go, Roy Williams. Thanks for wearing our shoes. God, I mean that's a high-paying job. It's I mean that like, right. Most yeah, ninety-nine point nine percent of Americans would love a job that pays them that much. Oh yeah, total. <laughs> right, right, and that's and that's just the bonus Not he gets bonus. from Nike. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of incredible. Um, for for essentially for doing nothing. Right. Um, you know his 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 guys wear their shoes, and so they give him three hundred thousand dollars. Right. You know, and it's also we should mention as well. It's also rife. Um, or it's, it, there's a great deal of potential for, for, for graft and for corruption. Um, as we saw with uh, like Adidas a few years ago, um, they had the stuff that brought down Rick Pitino um, mm-hmm. at, at, uh, at Louisville, so, um, who formerly had been at Kentucky and has won some NCAA titles there and everything. So, so I, do, I do think that, I don't know, there, there are many wrinkles to this story, but, but we did want to make sure that we talked about it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It, it, it's, it, it brings up a lot of different I think Nike's going to be fine, by the way. So... <laughs> I want to get in that little soapbox too. So when it went down, all of these kind of brand specialists went nuts about how Nike lost a billion dollars of brand equity that night, and it was this like huge catastrophe, and their stock would drop significantly. And they're all they're all retweeting the photo they're of all, President Obama pointing and saying his shoe broke. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's an old saying: never ask the barber if you need a haircut. <laughs> that kind of played into this kind of eruption. It's a lot of people who specialize in brand, who specialize in marketing, talking about how this is the worst disaster ever. Here's, here's a little tip. 
Nike's going to be fine. Yeah. Their stock dropped like 1%. Uh, if you look back at their stock from like 2008 to 2010, a 1% dip in a day would have been the best day of their year almost. Right. Relax. Yeah. Uh, it, everybody telling you that are people who specialize in that. So they like to pump up their department as being the most important. And, you know, people who are, who are good at marketing tend to be good at self-promotion and kind of creating content that, that makes them look better than right. necessarily needed. So when I saw that, that, that blow up, I was just like, this is just a part of the sports industrial complex. They're fine. This is not nearly as big of a deal as people are making it out to be. Really good, into- really good podcast on the sports industrial complex from Freakonomics recently. And yeah. so, so folks, if you haven't listened to that, it came out last year. But uh, speaking of Nike and shoe problems, I do want to mention one other one. This one's more directly related to track and field. So mm-hmm. um, there is a British runner um, from the UK named Laura Mir. And Laura Mir, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, just last week actually ran 418.75 five for the mile for the indoor mile um and she broke a yeah yeah brilliant time she broke the 31 year old british mile record um and uh uh you know kudos to her she actually smashed the record uh by by a few seconds um and a she was wearing nike vaporfly spikes um and we've seen sort of a spiked version of nike vaporflies uh gwen jorgensen wore them on the track last year a few times um, and, uh, and it's essentially the vapor fly with the foam and the spike or, and, and the plate, but then it also has a few spikes drilled around the edges, uh, on the, of the forefoot. Um, and if you or I tried to go buy one of those, we might not be able to find them. Yeah. Like, I don't know where I could buy those. Um, you definitely can't buy them on the Nike website. And that's actually what we're getting to here. So she was wearing a pair of Nike Vaporfly spikes when she ran that 418.75 mile. And a complaint has been lodged with the international governing body, the IAAF of track and field, um, that says that that's in violation of one of their rules. Uh, now, the rule specifically says that any equipment that a professional athlete is using in one of their meets has to be something that is generally available to the public as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the UCI, which is the International Governing Body for Cycling, has the same rule. And it always comes up in the UCI stuff because cause cyclists, they're wearing a helmet or using wheels or there's so much gear in cycling um, that it's always coming up. Um, and, and the ITU, which is the international governing body for, for triathlon, I don't know if they have a similar rule or not, but anyway, the IAAF says, says you, you have to have gear that is generally available to the general public. And as I said, if you or I said, Hey, I saw what Laura Mir wore. I want to get those shoes you had on. I'm going to give those a try. I don't think we'd be able to find them. Um, and so it was actually one of Nike's competitors who is unnamed, uh, that said, Hey, this is a violation of the rule her record should be invalidated. Wow. Um, and so the IAAF right now, they've they've gotten the shoes from her, mm-hmm. <laughs> which seems like a weird thing to do, but I guess it makes perfect sense as part of an investigation if you, you collect the shoes. Um, it's and like they, collecting the smoking gun. From right, the exactly, scene, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and they said, and they're, they're, they've launched an investigation to determine whether they are going to, in fact, ratify her record and, and, and um, recognize it as the new British mile record. So, so we'll see. What do you think about that? Uh, it, it's interesting. It gets back into the shoe politics kind of aspect that has become, you know, more and more uh, a part of the sport as the sport gets bigger and, mm-hmm. you know, elite athletes get more popular and shoe companies see, a, you know, more and more of an opportunity to advertise via elite runners mm-hmm. and just see a bigger, you know, running market. Yeah. So that's kind of my number one takeaway is this is kind of, you know, we, we tend to get a bit more petty as the pot gets bigger, you know, mm-hmm. in any business or industry. 
Um, the other takeaway kind of just as a runner is uh, it seems like a pretty major um, like for, uh, slip up by the by the runner and by those involved. Like, yeah, it seems like a rather obvious violation to me. So yeah. I, you almost wonder how they didn't think of that. Yeah, I, I think and, and, and the, the my response to that and I agree with you on that. My response to that is that it's because of the uneven application of the rule. Right, that's um, a good point. You know, and so, so a really good example of this, I think, is a few years ago um, in cycling, Mark Cavendish, who was this mm-hmm. British cyclist and was a sprinter and was one of the great cyclists in, in the world at the time, uh, four or five years ago, won the world championship in cycling, won mm-hmm. the, the world championship road race in cycling. You know, mm-hmm. great, fantastic. He deserved it. Um, and he won it in a sprint finish. He was wearing a helmet that was essentially a prototype helmet at the time. Um, by by the bike manufacturer Specialized. Um, It was an aerodynamic helmet. Um, He just barely won. Did that aerodynamic advantage coming from that helmet, was that just enough to actually push him across the finish line first? Potentially, yeah, even though it was a sprint finish and all that sort of thing. Potentially, sure. But the important thing is that that helmet was not generally available. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... A lot of people said that's a violation of the rules and and therefore you should take away his world championship. The UCI did not take away his world championship. They didn't say, oh, we're going to take the world championship, the most prestigious race of the year. We're going to take that win away from one of the biggest stars of the sport. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do that. Um, And they just kind of just, they they sort of let it go. They didn't even address it. Just people complained about it and they didn't even put out a statement about anything. They just let it go. By the way, that is a very big underlying storyline mm-hmm. in a lot of sports yeah uh if if tom Bra- if Peyton manning gets caught cheating in some way trust me the nfl is going to do everything they can to rewrite the rule right, book to right. make sure he doesn't get punished right if you know, deflate gate right um with, with tom brady uh you uh, the, the, there's a reason alabama has never been nailed for cheating but like <laughs> samford got nailed a few years ago and it's like come on like there's no way that you know um, these smaller brands are cheating left and right and still not producing wins. Yeah, I mean you have you have governing you have governing bodies who are also supposed to be promoting the sport. Right. And 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 those are two really separate missions. Though on the one hand you're trying to make the sport more popular and so you don't want to have everybody be cheaters and take away big records and and uh, uh, nullify championships, but on the other side you, you want to follow the rules. And so so effectively, I mean with back to Laura Mir, if the IAAF wants to follow the rules, she should be disqualified. Yeah. She should. Um, they're probably not going to disqualify her because that would cause such an uproar and and people would then complain that they they don't uniformly apply the rules and, and, and everything else. Um, and so, I mean, we'll see. It's just, I, I think, as you said, and as, as we mentioned with Zion Williamson here, it highlights some of the, the sort of deeper, more fundamental issues inside the sport. Yeah, and, and here's someone who can actually offer a bit of a cautionary tale, and I didn't even think about this until you, you just mentioned the distinction between the, the promoting body and the governance body. That should almost be two separate entities. Mm-hmm. The guy who is really the poster child for why that should be two separate entities is actually Roger Goodell. So he was the commissioner of the NFL, obviously, when, mm-hmm. you know, right as social media was taken off and people started to catch players, you know, uh, doing things they shouldn't be off the field in a much more visible way, mm-hmm. Right. And so he kind of took on the yeah, idea. Yeah, started, started getting it on camera. So he he right. So he started to become. They they called him like Sheriff Roger back in like 2010, 2011, because he was like, I'm gonna come on, I'm gonna clean up the sport, yada yada. The problem is once you take on 
the police the policing kind of um, responsibility, Mm -hmm. then you're also in charge of almost advertising all the faults Mm -hmm. because then you have to put players on public trial. And it has caused a lot of tension between him, the owners, the players, and it's really become, you almost need a scapegoat organization that can say, hey, we're going to suspend this player. And then Roger could say, well, you know, owner of this team, I don't want to suspend him, but we have to because this other governing body is. Um, Nobody likes the IRS, Right, you know, no one likes the 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 kind of governing body, but you need you yeah. need a separate entity that says, "Hey, guys, this is we crossed the line." Here. Yeah, you need somebody to be a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, why has why has Major League Baseball never tried to get steroids? Steroids truly have they never really mounted an effort to get steroids out of baseball yeah. because they know it's gonna it would wreck their image, right? And I mean, think about what has happened with cycling when it comes to and, and track and field when it comes to steroid That's use. Great point. I mean, track and field and cycling are probably the two two biggest sports or, or, or they have done more than any other major sport to actually try and and confront drug use in their ranks mm-hmm. um, and what is the outcome of that they have both become known as drug-addled sports because then you have just you have actually more headlines about you know Jimmy Smith was suspended mm-hmm. versus the you only get one headline a year of saying hey this team won the Super Bowl or right. this team won the big meet versus 10 times a year you say right this player was caught right and uh, most investigations take you know several rounds right so it's several rounds of headlines saying okay we think this person took roids okay right. this evidence points to they did now they're finding appeal Here, here's their response so it's a very yeah. long cycle of as, as well headlines. it should be for the sake of due process but 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 yeah i mean and so so if you're in charge also of promoting the sport i mean what choice do you have except to say Say, well, we don't want our sport to be tagged as as a whole bunch of drug users, so we're just going to turn a blind eye to it. Right. And that's that's literally exactly what Major League Baseball has done. So they don't want to know because mm-hmm. they know that's kind of the secret sauce that keeps these players. Let's go ahead and switch gears here. Um, let's talk about a couple other quick pieces of news. I know you had one. Yeah. Um, so to keep it happy and light, this was pretty fascinating. So New Balance is opening a pub in in the UK. Where runners can actually... It's in the UK? It's in the UK. Oh, crap. Okay, keep going. Yeah, where you can actually exchange your miles for free pints. So you can go off and run a certain number of miles and come back and they'll give you free beer, essentially. That's pretty badass. And I have to say, I am really hoping this is a successful prototype. Right? That way they can move it to Atlanta, the running... Running City USA? Yeah, Running City (laughs) USA. Come on, Rich Kanawha, bring it home. Um... Well, they have a partnership with Mizuno, so maybe if this does well with New Balance, they can convince right. Mizuno that they need to open their own pub. There you go. Um, Call but, up Tess Sobo, me and Marshall, and, and she could she could broker a deal with Monday Night Brewing. There you go. Yeah. So New Balance and Strava have actually teamed up to launch you know four separate challenges with kind of in partnership with this pub. So it's New Balance and Strava working together. Mm. So I think that's how they track what you're doing. Yeah, so, um, so some dude can't just rock in and be like, yeah, hey guys, yeah, I'm going to run around the corner here. I, I, some guy came, I just ran 50 miles. Yeah. How much beer does that get me? But it's No, not- just take my word for it. I ran 50 <laughs> miles. So, you know, as you know, Strava releases challenges. Mm. And so like one challenge for, for this pub is you have to run 40 miles between like February 24th and March 3rd or something to that effect. Or maybe you have to redeem it between that time. And then you get like two drinks for you and a friend, um, for example. I love that. So I almost posted on social media. I was like, all right, miles for pines for you you and a friend. All right, now who wants to be my friend? (laughs) Um, For sure. No, I I love that idea. I would, I mean, 
I, I love it on multiple levels, not the least of which is that just the, the communal aspect of, hey, you finish up a run and you can go have a beer that's paid for by your run. Um, I just think that's super fun. Uh, if New Balance does do it, let's see, New Balance is actually mostly based out of Boston, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I know Reebok is, but New Balance is New Balance too. is well. That's why they're so big and like, uh, they're actually kind of crushed the Boston Marathon. Even though Adidas is the, the national sponsor, the actual sponsor, mm-hmm. New Balance is always like right there on the edge. Like, okay, okay. we can't be... This is the red tape, so we're going to stand right at the red tape and gotcha. just blow you up with New Balance gotcha. stuff. That's that's the way it was in, in the New York City Marathon in 2016. Mm-hmm. ASICS was the sponsor, but New Balance like clearly had a presence. Right. And then only a few months later, they announced that, that New Balance is now the new sponsor. And New Balance is now the sponsor of, of, of the New York City So this Marathon. is kind of back to shoe politics. If you notice, New Balance has started releasing a lot of just like stores, just New Balance like standalone stores. stores. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have noticed that. Um, so I'm interested to see what their strategy is and what they're trying to do, but they seem to be a bit more popular among, not so much like in the running community, but almost with more casual runners, if that makes sense, or mm-hmm. folks that are just trying to start running for the mm-hmm. first time. Yeah, um, and they also have put out a lot more lifestyle shoes over the course of the past three or four years. And that's, yeah. Um, and the, the I mean, i.e. their shoes, their their. I guess you could call them running shoes, but ain't nobody running in them. Right. You know, and they're, they're like, you know, leather uppers and things like that. So they're designed like running shoes. So, so yeah. I mean, if you go on their website, um, I mean, just the, the, the number of shoes they have and the different custom styles and colorways yeah. and all that sort of thing, I think are kind of interesting. So, yeah. Score one for New Balance. Very good. Speaking of, of things that reach out to a wide array of people, uh, somebody shared a piece of news on our Facebook page this weekend. Um, and thanks for doing this, Tiago. I'll give you a shout out for that. On Thursday, um, that said that the organizers of the Paris Olympic Games in 2024, they're looking into various ways of increasing citizen participation in the Olympic Games. Um, and so they're looking at a bunch of different events where they might be able to have like a citizen event alongside the Olympic event, if you will. Now, not allowing like, you know, regular average Joes to compete with Olympians. I'm not trying to say that. But is there a way to like have a BMX biking event? Um, you have the Olympians in the morning and just whoever wants to do it in the afternoon, right? Like mm-hmm. a road race in the afternoon. And so cool enough, one of the things they're doing that for um, is the marathon. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on the same course and in the same conditions as the Olympic athletes is what they've said here. And so they would start the Olympic marathon first thing in the morning. Um, and then an hour later, two hours later, maybe that afternoon, not exactly sure, they would have a citizen event. Um, just like you sign up for it and you're able to go and you have your number and, and you cross the finish line, you get to finish your medal and t-shirt, right? Yeah. How cool is that, man? Um, and now it's, it's unclear whether it's going to happen. They didn't say whether it would be alongside the women's marathon or the men's marathon, which for me, I don't care. Um, but they, they, they tend to, uh, the women's marathon tends to take place about halfway through the Olympic games and the men's marathon tends to be on the very last day. Um, and then traditionally the men's medal ceremony tends to be during the closing ceremonies of the Olympic games. Um, but, um, but yeah, so they haven't made it clear whether it's going to be during the men's race or the women's race, or maybe whether they're going to combine them for the first time, which I think would be super cool or, or, um, I don't know, but anyway, um, but, uh, obviously if you know you and I signed up and, and we went over to Paris in 2024, we would not be eligible for medals. <laughs> Rats. So so yeah, sorry. That's what's um, gonna stop us. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's I I would totally be, be be in there amongst it if if not for that. But um, but yeah, I already told my wife. I was like, all right, you know what? My sons are gonna be our, our sons are gonna be ten 
at that point about ready for a trip to Europe, like, I just think it sounds super cool. Now, the IAAF in the past has actually discouraged different race organizers from doing this because they worry about the security of it, um, which is fair and which is legitimate. Um, but yeah, I, I think this would be such a cool thing. I mean, you know, Road to Gold is coming up next weekend, which is the mm -hmm. preview event for the Olympic trials here in, in Atlanta. And I'm super excited about that just to, I mean, even though the pros are starting 15 minutes in front of, of all the non-pros, it's just going to be cool that, that we have this event where they compete and then we kind of compete on the same course with them. Um, and uh, yeah, to do that in an Olympic marathon, that's just, yeah, I think it just sounds fantastic. What do you think? I, I'm i already looking at, at plane ticket prices to Paris. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, that would be super cool. I mean, that's the beauty of our sport, though. Yeah. In, in so many ways. I mean, in, in any other sport. And like, we've talked can, about that before. You can't. Yeah in any way participate in the Super Bowl. Right. Heck, you can't even play football in a rec league, you right. know, after like high school, you right. know? Um, like getting, like during, people think it's a big deal to walk on the field where the Super Bowl is being played like weeks or months before or after the game. Do right. you know what I'm saying? They're like, I got to be on the field, you know? Um, and like like even college football, like Sanford Stadium where UGA plays, people are like, oh, I got to be on the field at Sanford I get to touch the grass. Don't even know what it looks like to be in the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to say nothing of actually being in the game. Right. And you and I have talked about how cool that is that, that um, you know, the Tour de France is over the roads of France. And if I want to ride those same climbs on my bike, I can. Not during the race, obviously, but, right. but at other times I can. Um, and this... This to me just takes that cool aspect just to a higher degree, just to a higher level. Absolutely. I mean, we yeah. almost take for granted the fact that we get to run the Peachtree Road Race, mm -hmm. these same Peachtree Road Race as elite athletes. Yeah. And in, and in many ways, we're also lucky enough that we're a sport where we can fully understand. I shouldn't say fully, but we get a pretty good understanding for what the athlete is going through when one, you know, one runner breaks another on Heartbreak Hill, for yeah. example, or yeah. Cardiac Hill. Yeah. Um, same conditions, same time. You know, in other sports, it's like, well, I, I, was in, I was a shortstop, so I don't really know what the pitcher's going through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we very much have a very clear, you know, we can very much imagine ourselves being, you know, an elite runner or being an elite athlete in, in a way that I think is pretty much more visceral than in other sports, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Did you have another piece of news? Because I did have one more piece of news before we talk about research here. And we're already starting to run long, so... <laughs> no, I think I'm good on the... Uh, All right, so let me, let me mention one more piece of news that I think is super important here. Um, and so we talked about the Milrose Games uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how um, an Ethiopian runner was a mere one one-hundredth of a second off of the world record in the indoor mile, which is pretty incredible. Um, and I've thought about that a lot over the course of the past couple of weeks, given that a blink of an eye takes... takes 30 one hundredths of a second, and and he missed the mile world record by one one hundredth of a second, um, and so Good so gosh. so yeah, just just an incredible, incredibly thin uh, uh, margin here. But anyway, um, something else happened at the Milrose Games that that is is worthy of mention, and that we they wanted to make sure we brought up here as well, um, and that's that a runner from Jamaica, twenty eight year old Jamaican distance runner named Kimoy Campbell. Um, he's sponsored by Reebok, and he was pacing the men's 3,000 meters. Um, and right there around the 1,000-meter mark of the 3,000-meter race, he stepped off the track, as he was supposed to since he was pacing the race, um, but then he collapsed, um, and he lost consciousness, and they had to bring medical personnel onto the infield there, and they actually had to defibrillate him. They actually had to shock him. Um, and they eventually get him off the track and they, they, they get him over to the hospital. Um, he spent, it's kind of unclear, it's, it's, he might have spent about 48 hours in a coma, but one way or another he was, he was not responsive for a couple of days, uh, and then he eventually kind of came back out of it. Now, 
um, obviously in, in pretty bad shape here. Um, and there's some questions as to whether his, his running career has a future um, now because he clearly has some congenital issues. But um, his parents, his family, his Jamaican family ended up starting a, a GoFundMe page. Um, and I checked right before we started rec recording. They've raised fifty-eight thousand dollars on their GoFundMe page. Uh, Reebok, his sponsor, has announced that they are putting in another fifty thousand dollars themselves. But the question, of course, is: Well, doesn't he have insurance? I mean, he was gamefully employed as a distance runner. He had a sponsor. Um, he's he's strong enough to actually be pacing a pro race. Um, why does he need a GoFundMe page? Um, and so it's shined a light, I suppose, and that's maybe the theme of today's podcast for some of our news. It shined a light on kind of a problem inside a lot of professional running circles. Yeah. Um, runners, for the most part, uh, with their sponsors, save for some really exceptional cases like Zap Endurance. Um, they're independent contractors, and so they're responsible for their own health insurance. Yeah. Um, and because they're on a shoestring budget... Um, they pretty much get bargain basement health insurance. Yeah. Um, and that was Kimoy Campbell's situation, that, that he's obviously a brilliant runner, but he's not quite good enough to, to um, be able to, to make tons and tons of money and buy himself really outstanding health insurance. Um, and, and he was not part of a training group like Zap Endurance, where, mm -hmm. um, where he would actually have health insurance provided uh, through his coaches and that sort of thing. Um, now, meet organizers, the, the meet was put on, the Milrose Games, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, major important race, well-known, sanctioned by the USATF, the USA Track and Field Association, the, the governing body of track and field and ours. Um, but um, the meet organizers, according to the USATF rules, they are not liable for any injuries that are incurred by non-USATF athletes in their races. Oh, no. Um, so, and so since he's Jamaican... He's not a USATF sanctioned athlete, and so they're not responsible for for any of his medical bills. Now, if he had been in a big worldwide meet that was that was sanctioned by the IAAF, the international meet, um, then the meet organizers would have to kick in some of their insurance money to pay for uh, his medical bills. But I'm sure that's a very little solace to him, given that's not his situation. Right. So, um, so yeah. For me, I mean, and I, I'm eager to hear what you have to say too, Patrick, of course, but for me, if nothing else, this puts, um, it, it shows me how important it is to have training groups like Zap Endurance that are actually providing real health insurance for their athletes mm -hmm. um, and, and what an enormous benefit that is. Because um, Kim Kimoy Camel, it's not like this was his first race. I mean, he's you know 28 years old. He's been a distance runner for probably half of his life, um, and and he suddenly drops dead or drops almost dead um, a quarter of a way, a third of a way through a 3,000 meter race. Um, that's kind of incredible. Um, and if you ever thought somebody who doesn't really need health insurance, you would think, oh, it's probably this super healthy professional distance runner, right? right? But clearly, he had an underlying issue there that that nearly killed him. Um, and so not only that, but you can have something happen off the track. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To say nothing of getting run over by a car like, like, right. like Cameron Bean did or, right. or, um, or just getting in a car wreck. Right. You know, as you're driving to practice or as you're just kind of going out to dinner or something. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th that's one of my big takeaways is it, is that, you know, kudos to Zap Endurance, um, who we will see next week or this week at the, uh, the March to Gold race. Right. Um, uh, kudos to them for, for serving their athletes so well. Do you have any other thoughts about that one? Uh, a few others, just not too different. I actually saw a, a pro athlete or a pro runner. He responded saying, you know, a lot of uh, 
professional runners are on and this is says my ignorance are on medicaid or medicare which one is it it would be it would be medicaid for young people medicaid medicaid are actually on medicaid Mm -hmm. which is not very encouraging when you realize they're supposed to be going off and representing our country and all the greatest of of, you know our country and they're on medicaid um so that's that's one thing second well it it reminds me of how steve prefontaine back in the day um was on food stamps yep and, and he was, because uh, he had to maintain his amateur, I mean, it was a different situation. He had to right. maintain his amateurism in order to be able to compete at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a rule anymore. Um, but still, at the same time, I think there's there's some of that in our DNA, at, yeah. at the very least. But but yeah, that that these are people that, that every four years were like, oh, hey, y'all need to go represent our country and you need to try and win. And then in, in the intervening times, they're on Medicaid right. and on welfare. Right. Um, that's some bullshit. Yeah. And the second thing, so we talked about Zion Williams not being able to get paid, you know, the, the millions of dollars he has away from in the NBA. That, to me, almost distracts from the real issue with the NCAA, where you have a lot of football players who are getting hurt in college and then don't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or like the moment they are off campus is the moment they don't have health insurance. Yeah. And so you see a lot of them having to pay lifelong, very extensive medical bills mm-hmm. without... Um, you know, any kind of coverage from the school. Right, right. And that's the, and someone actually brought that up several years ago. One of the athletes brought that up and made that fight and that got shut down immediately because that would be far more expensive right. than paying the star right. players. And and they can be on their parents' health insurance if they're under the age of 26. But if if they grew up in, in, in poverty, there's a good chance their parents don't have health insurance, you know? And so, so as soon as they, they step off campus, like you say, or they get injured in some way that has nothing to do with their sport, then, then mm-hmm. the insurance policy that the, the school has on them no longer applies. So, yeah, I think that... that um, or if they get cut... i got to tell you another thing that happens. Sorry, I get cut you up. But let's say you get an injury, you get cut, yeah. then you're not covered. Right. And your, your insurance you know, ends the day you're cut. Oh, by the way, you're gonna probably going to get cut once you have that injury. Right. Um, and so, I mean, and, and that, that's kind of a separate issue, or at least it's a, it's a different domain of the same issue. But but I think that the point is that there's, there's all these folks that are competing at a very high level um, who there are gaps in their in their coverage mm-hmm. um, and that is frustrating and tragic and something for us to be mindful of as thoughtful athletes mm-hmm. um, very good all right we only got a few more minutes so let's let's talk about some research real quick you go first sure so mine's uh, a, 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 I'll start it quickly so folks who listen to this podcast you know they know I was on a bit of a sleep research kick in 2018 <laughs> um, and a lot of my research from last year was focused on the effects of sleep and how it really is kind of the ultimate recovery tool for athletes with a specific focus on endurance athletes well I have expanded my interest a little bit now I'm, and I'm not only looking at sleep but it really kind of started to dive into, you know, all different different forms of recovery, right? Um, And if you think about it, that makes sense because the real question I'm trying to answer now is as an adult and as a coach of adult athletes is how do we make the athletics lifestyle sustainable? Right. Because we're not just trying to push athletes to succeed for a few years in college, but we're trying to push them to succeed for the long haul over, you know, hopefully decades of running and endurance athletics. Mm -hmm. So I'm kicking off this fascination with a a meta-study or a meta-analysis, excuse me, um, on recovery. So this study was published in Frontiers in Physiology by a university research team in France. And as I mentioned you know, a moment ago, this was a meta-analysis, which is essentially a study of studies for the mm-hmm. folks who maybe are not in the academic field. And so what they, what they do is they pull together all the studies on a, on a given topic, and for this study it's recovery you know, methods, 
to get an idea of what the various studies provide in terms of like what findings are consistent across the various studies conducted, conducted, what are some inconsistent findings, and where do we have gaps in the research, okay? And so this particular study, they wanted to, to look at the various recovery techniques, such as stretching, massages, compression garments, ice baths, cryptotherapy, etc., and see which ones aided in faster recovery. Right on. Okay? Now, the first challenge is in answering the question of what does faster recovery even mean, right? Because it's hard to know, hey, today I ran two and a half hours, I put on compression socks, you know, my perceived soreness lasted until tomorrow morning, right. but what would have been like without the compression socks, right? right? So there, there is, you know, a bit of... Or, or does, does perceived soreness, is perceived soreness 24 hours later, is that a good metric of recovery? Right. Exactly. You yeah. are transitioning me nicely. Yeah. I love it. So the researchers looked at several different outcomes, mm -hmm. including uh, perceived muscle soreness and perceived fatigue. Mm -hmm. So they looked at the subjective measures. Mm -hmm. Then they also measured inflammation and muscle damage, which mm -hmm. I won't get into how they measure it, but I mean, they took actual measurements. Right. Um, they actually took muscle samples, exactly. which is good, actually. So, you know, none of these measures are perfect, but you can tell two measures are subjective perceived soreness, perceived fatigue, mm. while two more are objective, like inflammation and muscle damage. Right. Um, so the, the muscle soreness and fatigue have the obvious caveat of being subjective to placebo effect. Um, so with that in mind, the overall result of the meta-analysis was that most of the studied recovery techniques like massage, compression garments, ice baths, all had positive effects on perceived muscle soreness. However, a few like electrostimulation and hyperbaric therapy did not have much help. Okay. Um, so here's, I'm, and I'm kind of blowing through the results here, but uh, the, and then the best kind of results for inflammation came from massage and cold exposure. Okay. Okay. Now, there are a few interesting takeaways. First, these findings do seem to kind of line up with the experience of most competitive athletes, specifically with most competitive endurance athletes. You know, if you look, if you ask most like, elite runners and most elite endurance athletes, a lot of them talk about, you know, regular massages and regular ice baths being considered recovery priorities, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, you know, compression garments have really gained a lot of steam recently. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of come on to that recently myself as well. However, some of the other things like electrostimulation has never really been something. I've never really heard somebody say, hey, I have to have my electrostimulation mm -hmm. once a month or every quarter or something of that nature. Um, now, it's obviously possible that massage and ice baths came out on top precisely because athletes already like them, so their pre-existing beliefs created this reality that it was helping them, that, that it helped their perceived soreness. But, but, but it also helped with the objective part, right? Exactly. Yeah. So all that is to say, you know, I, I, it, the, the research into recovery methods is kind of a, a budding field. This is kind of a bit of an introduction. To, to some degree, um, you know, to say, hey, there's a lot we still don't know. Mm -hmm. And we still don't know the difference between, you know, perceived recovery and actual recovery. But then on the other hand, you know, what is recovery if it's nothing but, you know, uh, in, in emo if, if, if it's not emotional or mental as well? Right. It's, it's a, an idea of I feel ready to go now right. in a way that much more than I would have without the ice bath or without the massage. Right. without the compression garments, etc. Right. So this is a bit of a, a, a teaser study to kind of, or a, a gateway study that I'm going to use. And I've, I've found a few others yeah. um, that I'm going to kind of, you know, talk about over the next few episodes, including one that looked at whether or not a post-run beer 
helps or hurts your recovery. All right. So there's a little teaser. We will look forward to that one. Uh, and then, of course, we'll link it back to the New Balance bar. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure that good. we have plenty of runners that are going to be on the edge of their seat hoping that their <laughs> post-run beer is going to be taken from that's them. That's right. That's right. Um, well, well, I mean, so that makes me think of two things. One is I like the conceptualization uh, of saying, okay, this is good for your mental recovery and this is good for your physical recovery, or this is the subjective and this is the objective. Because, you know, sometime over the course of the next few months, uh, Patrick and I are going to do a book review of the book Endure. And, and um, he talks about in that book how he, one of the very last chapters, he talks about recovery methods and he says, hey, if it's helping you recover mentally, it's helping you recover physically. Exactly. Um, and so, so he essentially argues that the placebo effect is is it often gets derided as something fake but because your mind has such a profound influence on your physiology that placebo effect is actually a real effect that's right and so 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 i i i appreciate that conceptualization that's saying okay well these are the subjective ones and these are objective ones um but really i mean the subjective ones they matter as much as the objective ones at least according to, to alex hutchinson and endure which we'll talk about soon um the other thing that it reminds me of, it makes me think of, is that the 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 stuff on ice baths is mixed. Yes. Um, the recovery stuff on ice baths. And so the reason why a meta study is really worthwhile is because it basically looks at all of these studies and says, okay, yeah, it's mixed, but on the whole or on the average, studies point to it's pretty good. Right. Do you know what I mean? And right. I, And I think that that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you have these sort of mixed results, you know, some people saying it's really worthwhile and some people saying it's not, you can get a meta study and the meta study says, yeah, okay, there are mixed results, but on the whole, it seems as if there are more studies that suggest that it's good for you than, than not. That's, that's exactly right. And it, it, because it points to us getting into more and more of the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. I mean, sleep is the one where it's like, it's great. There's never been a study that doesn't say sleep isn't fantastic. The mm-hmm. more the merrier. But then when you get into things like the ice baths, the massages. So let's look at massages, for example. We don't really know what's going on during a massage. Like we don't, we haven't really pinpointed, you know, this is what's enhancing the recovery. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it. just because we don't know or we haven't identified it yet doesn't mean there isn't something physiologically going on. Right. Um, just because we don't know the mechanism doesn't just mean we don't know the, the mechanism not, doesn't mean it's not yeah, there. Yeah. Um, you still arrive at the destination even if you don't know the path. Right. And then kind of the second part of that, which we've already discussed too, is, you know, the thing about placebo riddled studies, you know, showing these, you know, recovery techniques make different athletes feel less sore and less fatigued. Well, that's the entire point of recovery anyway. So even if it is a placebo effect, it still works right. to some degree. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Um, it's it's going to be fascinating to kind of look at all these different studies to see what works, what doesn't. Um, and, and the real kind of big takeaway I see right now is there's no one magic bullet, mm-hmm. you know, outside of like the sleep and the refueling. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, so you may not want to spend your time or money chasing a, a silver bullet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean what you're doing is necessarily wrong. Sure. So. Very good. Very good. Um so yeah, my study kind of kind of comes on the heels of that. And and when you're thinking about all of these different things that, that people can do to recover or can do to make themselves faster or to increase their efficiency and all that sort of thing, that plays into to, to my study. So the one that I have, I think it was actually also in Frontiers of Physiology, um, but it's a new study called Extrapolating Metabolic Savings in Running, Implications for Performance Predictions. Um, and it's from research at the University of Colorado. It's actually from the same uh, lab that did the independent studies of the Vaporfly 4% shoe um, when it first came out. 
Um, and what they did is they looked at people of varying speeds and they said, all right, when you do things that increase your efficiency, mm-hmm. how do they influence people at different speeds? And I, I found this one particularly interesting because I think often we will hear people say, oh, well, I'm not going to buy a pair of Vaporfly 4% or I'm not going to try and lose a little bit of extra weight or, or something else like that that's going to make me more efficient because I'm not fast enough for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the place where I hear it the most is when it comes to like speed worker strides. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the people say, oh, I'm not really fast enough to benefit from doing speed worker strides. And, and my, my response is always, even if you're even if even if you're not super fast, doing speed work and strides will make you a more efficient runner, which mm-hmm. over time will, will make you a faster, more solid runner. You and I have talked about on this podcast before that the Vaporfly 4% shoe, right? The Vaporfly 4% shoe is called the Vaporfly 4% because it improves your efficiency by 4%. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that your time is necessarily going to be 4% faster. For most people who wear them, they found that that means it's about 1.5% to 2% faster as far as time goes. Well, they kind of looked at that mathematical relationship there and they said, okay, if we improve efficiency by 2%, 3%, 4%, what does that mean for the time? And what they found was that at nine minute pace, at nine minute per mile pace, that's where the efficiency rating and the time rating lined up perfectly. So if you're 4% more efficient at nine minute pace, you're going to be able to go 4% faster. Okay. And so, so all that stuff we talked about with Vaporfly 4%, you actually do get a 4% boost if, if you're going nine-minute pace mm-hmm. in your time. Um, if you're going slower than 9% pace, you get more than a 4% boost from a 4% economy increase. Um, and if you're going faster than nine-minute pace, you actually get less than that amount. Um, so, for instance, a 1% improvement in running economy for somebody who's doing a 430 marathon. So, a 430 marathon, yeah. it's a little bit over 10-minute pace, not yeah. quite 11-minute pace, right? Um, and so, so somebody who's doing, uh, who has a 1% improvement in running economy for a 430 marathoner, it would make him or her 1.1% faster. So, 1. 1% improvement equals 1.17% time faster. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a 3-minute and 7-second improvement in their finish time just by improving your efficiency by one percent on the other hand people who are going faster if they improve by one percent they're not going to see a one percent improvement in their time so take that same one percent improvement in efficiency and somebody who's running 203 so super elite world class and that would only enable that person to run 0.65 percent faster Mm -hmm. so less than one percent faster um, which would only be 40 seconds seven seconds faster Um, and so the, the big takeaway for this for me um, is that this is really good news for people who are, who are not going nine-minute pace, for people whose right. goal it is to run four hours for the marathon, to run 4.30 for the marathon, to break five for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things that we talk about that maybe you think don't apply to you uh, in terms of the shoes and in terms of the mm-hmm. speed work and in terms of the pacing strategy and in terms of the nutrition and, and all of these varying things – they actually have more potential for those of you who are going over four hours than for those of you who are going under four hours. Um, now, it's not so great news for the faster folks. <laughs> yeah. um, faster folks will still get an improvement. It just won't be quite as stark and quite as huge, um, but they'll still get an improvement. But um, this, to me, really puts to bed the, the idea that, that, oh, well, no, all those things that you talk about with efficiency, those are only for fast people. I'm not fast enough for that. What do you think? 
Yeah, I love the angle that you put there where you said, you know, it, it is funny how a lot of times people say, oh, I'm not fast enough to do strides or speed work or something or, or et cetera. Um, but in many ways, they'll receive even more of a, of a gain there. All right. We're out of time, man. <laughs> we are. This was fun, though. So, so it was fun. We had a lot to talk about here. And so so thanks, everybody, for joining us. And, and by all means, let us know what you think about all the various things we talked about because we talked about a lot this week. So we'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thank you.